0: Anybody am Spinning out of the ashes of the by-then-failing Ultimate Spider-Man, Miles Morales' Spider-Man saw writer Brian Michael Bendis kill off Peter Parker and then create a new character to take over the mantle of Spider-Man. Bendis has said that if he had his druthers, he would have created a Peter Parker who was a person of colour from the beginning, but they didn't really give it much thought when the Ultimate Universe began back in 2000. Well, I suppose some background is in order. In the late 1990s, Marvel Comics were in free fall, with sales in the toilet after decades of mismanagement finally took its toll. Editor and artist Joe Quesada, who had had some small measure of success with an imprint of Marvel Comics called Marvel Knights, was given the keys to the Marvel Kingdom and charged with resurrecting the moribund Marvel brand. This he did, with some radical changes in presentation, format and in the content of the books – Out were a number of old-fashioned creators, and in was a more up-to-date and hip take on the heroes of the Marvel Universe. Changes came thick and fast as Quisada and his publisher Bill Jemis threw anything and everything at the wall to see what would stick. Indie creators were given established characters to mixed, although interesting, results. One thing Quisada couldn't erase, though, was the decades of Marvel continuity that had become Marvel's biggest strength and its largest problem. Kozada couldn't reboot the entire Marvel Universe as much as he may have wanted to. He knew that was a step too far, even for someone as iconoclastic as himself. So he instead decided to give up-and-coming new creators, or creators with a specific voice, a new corner of the Marvel Universe to play in. The Ultimate Universe. Here, new takes on the old cornerstones of the Marvel Universe, Spider-Man, the Avengers and the X-Men, would be forged. These were radically different takes in the case of the Avengers and the X-Men, largely due to the cynical and mean-spirited writing of Mark Miller. But for Spider-Man, Brian Bendis took a different approach. Ultimate Spider-Man updated the core concepts of the Stan Lee and Steve Ditko originals, but by and large was rather sweet and faithful to the old comics. Sure... Bendis' padding out of the stories to six or seven issues, a dictum from Gemma's to sell trade paperbacks rather than monthlies, hurt the series no end. But the characterisation and approach was solid. However, the problem with a burgeoning universe is it doesn't stay burgeoning for very long. And by 100 issues in, the Ultimate Universe was suffering from the same problems as the main Marvel Universe. Too much continuity. Only the Ultimate Universe, with its cherry-picking approach to story-writing, got there a lot sooner. The Avengers, better known as the Ultimates, imploded, the X-Men likewise, and other takes on popular Marvel characters like a far more bestial and unlikable Hulk and a questionable Fantastic Four didn't find favour. Most of the books fell by the wayside, but Bendis, to his credit, kept reinventing the Spider-Man book to remain relevant. His last-ditch effort to keep the book alive was to kill Peter and introduce Miles Morales. Now, I have to be honest and upfront, as there are plenty of old episodes of Hey Kids Comics to back this up, but I was never that big a fan of the Ultimate Universe. X-Men and the Ultimates merely reheated old storylines, but shot them through with a nastiness that became Mark Miller's stock-in-trade. No one in the Ultimates was likeable, even Captain America was a massive jerk, and none of them were aspirational heroes. Only Spider-Man came even close to matching the charm of the original in terms of its likability, and even then, Bendis over-egged the pudding. The final straw for me was the sheer ego involved when Bendis and main artist Mark Bagley, whose work I adore, were patting themselves on the back for breaking Stanley and Jack Kirby's record as the longest running team on a Marvel comic. As if the padded, overlong seven issue stories and re envisioning of other people's works could possibly hold a candle to Kirby's creativity over the 102 issues he worked on the Fantastic Four. For me, the imprint was on life support from that point and I checked out not long after Bagley left the book. The death of Peter Parker was too much of a dangling carrot for me to not take a bite off and I was impressed by Bendis' handling of the emotion of the piece even if the ultimate version of the Green Goblin was too much like the Hulk for me. The impetus for this show came about when, for my birthday, my mum and dad bought me the Miles Morales Ultimate Spider-Man Omnibus, a decent-sized tome featuring issues detailing Miles' story, from his first appearance in Ultimate Fallout Issue 4, through his first series, Ultimate Comics Spider-Man 1-28, his team up with Peter Parker of the regular Marvel Universe, Spider-Men 1-5, through 5, the crossover miniseries Cataclysm 1-3, Ultimate Spider-Man issue 200, and the more recent series, Miles Morales Ultimate Spider-Man 1 through 12. The opening arc of the omnibus introduces us to the main characters, Miles Morales and his parents Jefferson and Rio, his uncle Aaron, and his best friend Ganke Lee. Aaron is a small-time thief now known as the Prowler thanks to an enhanced suit he has. Whilst robbing Osborne Industries, a genetically enhanced spider sneaks into Aaron's bag and then later bites Miles, who is visiting his uncle. Osborne and his team have been trying to replicate what happened to Peter Parker without any success, so Miles not dying is a a two-in-a-million chance. Miles' powers are slightly different to Peter's. He can camouflage himself and perform a spider sting as well as crawl walls and possess spider senses, although he has none of Peter's scientific acumen and therefore has no web fluid. I do wonder why Bendis didn't go down the organic web fluid route of the movies. Here is the first problem as I see it. Miles' origin is a carbon copy of Peter's. Nothing about this is new. The background details are different, although it's still an uncle who is involved, but Miles gets his powers in exactly the same way Peter does. This is redolent of Barry Allen and Wally West in the Silver Age DC comics than the more realistic Ultimate Universe. Miles is also just not an interesting character. He has no quirks to his personality, no dark side like Peter had, no hobbies or interests to speak of. He's not a superior student or anything like that. He just is. Now, before anyone gets on their high horse and sends me snotty emails, I have no problem with representation and can see how a Spider-Man who is a person of colour can be helpful and inspirational to people, but at least give the kid a personality. Likewise, Miles' parents aren't that interesting either. His dad has a secret, which we'll discover much later, and his mum is stalwart and true. Jefferson comes out better in that his relationship with his brother Aaron is very fractious and therefore has some levels to it for Bendis to play with. Aaron is more interesting in that he's an out-and-out villain. No ambiguity here. The only other member of Miles' initial supporting cast to stand out is his best friend Ganke Lee. Ganke is an Asian-American and he's utterly charming. He does have a personality. In fact, he has loads to spur, which makes up for Miles' lack of say. He's funny, sweet, wears some pretty cool comic-inspired t-shirts, collects and builds Lego, and is an all-round rock to Miles. I cannot but wish Ganke had been bitten by the genetically altered spider. That would have been interesting. Miles then worries constantly about his powers and what he's going to do with them, but he's spurred into agency by Peter's death, which Miles witnesses. After asking the ultimate version of Gwen Stacy why Peter did it, Miles buys a store-bought Halloween costume and takes to the night as Spider-Man for the first time. To be fair, whilst Miles is mostly charisma-free, his state of panic is nicely handled and his adoption of the costume feels like the first Spider-Man movie. The first villain the neophyte Spider-Man faces is... The Kangaroo? As usual in Bendis stories, Miles doesn't win this fight with skill, but with damn good luck. Still, he does learn that wearing Peter's costume could be considered in bad taste, especially when he's confronted by Spider-Woman, a.k.a. Jessica Drew. In the Ultimate Universe, Jessica is a modified clone of Peter, and she takes him to S.H.I.E.L.D. when Nick Fury gives him a pass after he helps them fight Electra. He also bequeaths unto Peter a new costume, the inverted look that Miles adopts on all of the promotional material. This is all in the first five issues, issues that are chock full of dialogue that doesn't really say much. It's an enjoyable, albeit very quick, read, but I'm left feeling that this is yesterday's turkey. It's only interesting when it picks up on Peter's life, and the supporting cast only comes to life when it's Peter's supporting cast. Miles is reacting all the time to Peter, rather than being Miles. He's not his own person yet, in this arc anyway. Anyway. Sarah Pacelli's art is nice, though, and she does a good job of making all the kids, Miles included, look 14 instead of just mini-adults. She also makes Gwen look about 18, which is hard to pull off in comics. However, Chris Samney takes over for the next two issues, and the art is much better. I like Pacelli. I love Samney. This two-issue arc focuses on Uncle Aaron, who got his prowler suit from the Tinkerer. Sam nee manages to blend noir-infused action with a cartoon sensibility, a tack that served him well on Daredevil, and he does an equally good job here. The slow-burning subplot about the mysterious past of Miles' father is also given more panel time, and Betty Brandt informs Jonah Jameson of the arrival in town of a new Spider-Man. Aaron immediately figures out who this new Spider-Man is and starts to blackmail Miles into helping him take over the underworld. This was a much better story. With the origin out the way, the addition of Aaron to the many problems in Miles' life feels like a new wrinkle, rather than a rehash of what has gone before, and the reintroduction of the Daily Bugle and its supporting cast is a welcome one. However, this plays into what I've said, that the book only really kicks into high gear when Peter's supporting cast carries some of the weight. The Bugle has no burring whatsoever on Miles' life, and as such feels like an add-on, even if the scenes are well-written and interesting. Miles is also still finding his feet which is probably why Bendis keeps putting him up against second stringers like the ringer. One of the issues with Bendis' work that I have is that he seems really uninterested in the superheroics and this book isn't an exception. He enjoys writing Miles using his powers and the character interplay but he seems bored by fight scenes. Bendis tries, God bless him, with some funny dialogue, but I get the feeling he wants these fight scenes out the way quickly so he can go back to writing fast-paced or rat tat dialogue in the Bugle newsroom or in a police precinct. Bendis also reintroduces Aunt May and Gwen Stacy back into the book, again confirming my long-held theory that it's Peter's supporting cast that are the backbone of this storyline. It takes another few issues to build up to Miles and Aaron joining forces against Miles's wishes to take down the ultimate version of the Scorpion, a really boring gangboss version of the characters, no different to other wannabe Kingpin-type characters. Aaron continues to force Miles to do what he wants or else, and he convinces Miles that getting the Scorpion out of the way is a good thing for New York City, neglecting to mention that it's also a good thing for Aaron. It's issue 12 by the time all this comes to a head and Miles confronts Aaron resulting in the Prowler and Spider-Man fighting and Aaron's accidental death. Giving Miles a death that he is partially responsible for is again straight out of the Peter Parker playbook. However, this interesting development is derailed somewhat by the next six issues, which is a crossover with some other storyline I neither know nor care about. The omnibus doesn't even bother to collect the full story, making it difficult to follow the through line. I thought the whole point of The Ultimate Line of Books was that they were created to avoid this kind of thing. The overarching plot of this story seems to be something about Washington DC having been decimated and the states seceding from the Union. Miles gets dragged into all this by the news that Spider-Man is a murderer and Captain America, the ultra-sanctimonious ultimate version of the character, takes it upon himself to tell Miles to quit being Spider-Man. Over the duration of the crossover, Miles proves his worth. This is all, ultimately, (laughs) a pointless sideline. The interesting stuff, Miles feeling guilty about Aaron's death, Gwen and May confronting Miles as Spider-Man, and his battle with another D-Lister, bathrock and Zelipur is actually far more interesting. May gives Miles Peters web shooters, which is a key moment, a proper passing of the torch... It does feel somewhat right that we, the reader, haven't a clue what's going on, as Miles doesn't either, so that works, but being dragged into this crossover just hurts the overall story. Also, an expensive omnibus like this should contain the whole damn thing, and the lack of context for this is infuriating as a reader. It isn't, however, something that made me angry. No, that would come later. That's not to say these six issues don't contain some nuggets of gold. Miles and Jessica become closer like brother and sister, and there's some commentary on arresting your own citizens for their own safety. The relationship between Miles's parents is also given a lot of page time, and it deepens their connection when we learn that Jefferson was a bad man at some point. It's not a surprise, per se, given how Aaron turned out, but it's a welcome character moment to learn that Rio knows all about Jefferson's past, and it isn't a big secret from everyone. That would have been cliched. Jefferson was one of the citizens arrested, and he stood up to the Hydra and Shield goons running the blockade, something that terrifies Jefferson, as Miles may learn of his past. The series then takes a break from its own linear narrative to slip the spider man miniseries in at this point. I had read this mini before, the only experience I had with Miles Morales before this, and I can honestly say I thought it was a dud. However, read in context. I changed my mind somewhat about this story, and now feel it's one of the better ones in the book. Through some temporal time tampering, Mysterio has managed to shatter the barriers between universes and the regular Marvel Universe's Spider-Man comes crashing through into the Ultimate Universe's Spider-Man and all manner of hilarity ensues. However, and you knew this was coming, this is yet another story that emphasises how dull Miles is as a character. Everything that is good about this story comes from Peter. His bewilderment over what happened, beautifully portrayed, by having the lettering change from upper to lower case the minute he journeys to the Ultimate Universe, to his reaction about learning the death of this universe's Peter Parker, to his meeting with Aunt May and Gwen. In fact, all the emotional beats of the story are Peter Parker beats. There's even a typical Bendis continuity cock-up. Since when has the regular Marvel Universe's Murray J needed glasses? Bendis doesn't even do a bad job with the big battle parts of the story. Sure, the ultimate redesign for Mysterio is dogshit, but the Ultimate Universe redesigns were dogshit generally. Also, I don't recall if the regular Spider-Man comics made any reference to the 616 Marvel Mysterio being trapped in the Ultimate Universe. But overall, this was a large and pleasant surprise, given my reaction when I first read it. The mini ends with Peter Parker back at home googling if his universe has a Miles Morales. A minor cliffhanger that will not be resolved in this book. Ultimate Spider-Man 16.1 follows. Remember when Marvel Comics tried to make that whole point 0.1 fiasco a thing? Pointless more like. Am I right? <clears throat> Sorry. That's what I get for trying to be a dude, bro. Anyway, this issue takes place almost entirely in the Daily Bugle, and it's a candidate for the best issue in the book. Betty Brant tries to convince Jonah of the validity of her new Spider-Man story, but Jonah isn't biting. She's connected Aaron to Miles and makes the deductive leap that Jefferson must be the new Spider-Man, which is plainly stupid, as Miles is clearly a very different body type to his father. Betty's investigative journalism is well written by Bendis, and her death at the hands of Venom is really chilling. Until you remember that Bendis told this exact same story with Terry Kidder in an issue of The Pulse. The next arc, running through issues 19 through 22, had a new Venom in town. It also features one of the funniest subplots in the book – See, Miles only has a finite supply of web fluid to go with the web shooters May gave him, so Ganke is trying to replicate the web fluid formula with limited success. There's also a cracking subplot with the Bugle staff. Jonah is cooperating wholeheartedly with the police investigation into Betty's murder, as he has nothing to hide, a beat that reveals Jonah's guilt regarding Peter's death. This is some of the best characterization Bendis has done, and many of the threads Bendis is weaving come together in this arc: the secret of Jefferson Morales, Maria Hill now being a cop rather than a SHIELD agent, Miles's secret life, and Oscorp's involvement in Miles's powers. It's also very action orientated, which isn't Bendis's forte, but in all honesty, he does a great job with it here. Bendis brings Gwen and Murray Jane into the story well, although the amount of people who are now figuring out who this new Spider-Man is demonstrates how hard it would be to maintain a secret of this magnitude. Even Maria Hill and Gankay Miles's roommate Judge have figured it out. The new Venom is Conrad Marcus, a damp squib of a reveal, but one that works within the confines of this story. See, Marcus has been a background player, threatened by Norman Osborn to find a way to recreate the accident that birthed Spider-Man, and subsequently blackmailed by Betty for information about said experiments. This is also the story where Bendis takes a rather predictable story swerve, in that he kills Rio. I really could have done without this. Not only is it predictable, a superhero story that kills off a parent or parent figure, but having Miles have two parents, both still alive and together, giving something that made him moderately unique, and he needs everything he can get in that regard. Even more predictably, this art leads into issues 23 through 28, Spider-Man No More. Now, if you're naming your story after one of the greatest issues in Spider-Man comics history, it better be a damn good one. The second rather predictable move Bendis makes here is a time jump. As a rule, the time jump is a lazy storytelling device. It means you can leap forward an unspecified amount of time, be it one year later or five or so years later or whatever, but it means you can make sweeping changes to the characters and their situations without having to explain it, rather than making these changes organically as the story unfolds. This then creates some false interest in the stories as the reader is hopefully going to wonder what has happened in that time. In me, the time jump tends to cause eye-rolling, and even when it's done well, as with Battlestar Galactica, it's still not a device I'm fond of. Still, Bendis establishes that Miles quit being Spider-Man in the wake of Rio's death, and hasn't been Spider-Man for just over a year. Maybe Bendis thought that a year of Spider-Man issues without Spider-Man being in them may be a bit dull, and he's probably right. Miles now has a new girlfriend, Kate Bishop, yet another example of giving a character a familiar name as fan service, but not having her be anything to do with that character. And Ganke is trying to convince Miles to return to the webs. Miles wants to tell Kate he used to be Spider-Man, and Ganke tells him that this is a monumentally stupid idea. Ganke's not wrong. Jessica Drew also wants Miles to return to the webs and gives him a present from Nick Fury, who also wants Miles to return to the webs. The present is a new costume and some more web shooters. By pure coincidence, of all the eateries in New York, Miles and Jefferson go to eat in. They visit the one Gwen is working at and she also reiterates that Miles should return to the webs. I'm sensing a pattern here. The story also introduces the ultimate versions of Cloak and Dagger, and Bendis does a damn good job of updating them, although they aren't drug addicts in this version. I'll be honest, I like that about the originals. Having them come from that and then pursue drug pushers was interesting, as Cloak and Dagger killed drug pushers, which obviously would put them into conflict with Spider Man, who doesn't like killing anybody. However, the people they were killing were in turn killing others. So there was a nice conflict of interest, though. Here they are high school sweethearts who were on the way to prom when they were in a car crash and experimented on by rocks. And It's the same but different. They are still Tandy Bowen and Ty Johnson, the powers are still the same, and they still go after bad people doing bad things. We are also introduced to Bombshell, aka Laurie Bonegartner, and between Spider-Man, Spider-Woman, Cloak and Dagger and Bombshell, this feels like Ultimate Marvel team-up. In the middle of this story, Ultimate Amazing Fantasy Issue 14 gets reprinted, spelling out Bombshell's backstory for us, and it's pretty much the same as Cloak and Dagger's. Overall, I liked the new Cloak and Dagger as much as I liked the old Cloak and Dagger. Making Dagger a bit more street smart and changing that jailbait costume she had are very good moves, and they work well as a couple, a team, and guest stars. In fact, in this arc, I like them more than Miles. The villain is Ultimate Taskmaster, and he's nowhere near as good as the regular Taskmaster. I don't know why the Ultimate Universe thought the best thing to do with all these really cool villains was remove everything about them that made them cool, and instead just made them boring regular guys. They all seem to have the same tailor because costumes are silly, and any personality they had in the 616 universe is bled out of them. Still, Ultimate Taskmaster does have something going for them in that he's able to stand up to our five heroes until Cloak eats him within his Cloak of Darkness and the team vow to take Roxon Incorporated down once and for all. The confrontation with Roxon is entertaining and Spider-Woman uses her credentials as an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. to bring it all to a satisfactory conclusion. We then interrupt the regularly scheduled story for another crossover, most of which isn't in this book. This one is called Cataclysm, and only the three-part mini-series Spider-Man is involved in is presented here. It's a big knockdown drag-out fight against Galactus. Because if we're ripping stuff off, why not rip off the Fantastic Four? We get an appearance by the Ultimates again. Yay! And Bendis does some really neat character beats. But if you're not going to publish the entire story in a really expensive boot like this one, why bother at all? <sighs> Still, it can't be skipped, we get more background on Cloak and Dagger, more on Bombshell, and Miles reveals his identity to his dad. This does not go well. Miles rescues Jonah from a crashed plane in one of the best action sequences in the book, and then it just ends. Because the main series isn't here, I have no idea how this all turned out, or how Galactus was defeated, and you know what? I don't care. The major story point for Miles here is that he comes clean to his dad as to his secrets. Unable to handle this, runs off not to be seen for a while. The strip continues with Ultimate Spider-Man issue 200. So apparently, the Ultimate Universe is now doing that really crap thing that the main Marvel Universe does in renumbering its books when an anniversary comes up. This is a massive con... Not only because Marvel's math does not resemble our Earth maths, but primarily because there hasn't been 200 issues of Ultimate Spider-Man. Marvel, you nixed that when you killed Peter and relaunched the comic with a new hero and a new number one. Anyway, Ultimate Spider-Man issue 200, (laughs) yeah right, has all the characters congregate at May Parker's house in Forest Hills to commemorate the two-year anniversary of Peter's death. As with the best Bendis stories, this has some really good character moments. Ganke makes a present for Gwen that Miles isn't convinced by, but Gwen actually adores. Crucially, we the audience never see what this is, and I really like that. Tony Stark delivers a ton of food and loads of old characters like Kong, Kitty Pride, and a few others show up to swap stories in a really sweet celebration of what Peter and Spider-Man accomplished. There's some really nice art, as different pencillers rock up for a jam session. After the party, Gwen suggests that they do something good with all the leftover food. The mourners take it all over to the Queen's mission and donate it in Peter's name. Overall, this was a really good issue. I could mention that, once again, Miles only really matters and is adjunct to Peter's story, but as this was such a lovely, lovely issue, I won't beat that drum again. The entire endeavour is only spoiled by the scene where a shadowy figure is watching all the goings-on. And if you can't work out that that's Peter Parker, you haven't read enough comic books. For whatever stupid marketing reason, the series then relaunched as Miles Morales, Ultimate Spider-Man, with a new number one. <sighs> Bendis continues to write, but David Marquez takes over as artist. Marquez has been performing Filling In Duty whenever Sara Pacelli took a break. I have to confess, this sounds like damning with faint praise, but I haven't even noticed the art in this book. It's not offensively bad, nor is it jaw-droppingly good. It's... it's fine. The only time it's stood out to me has been when a really good artist takes over for an arc, such as the aforementioned Chris Samney, or when Mark Brooks or Mark Bagley did a spread or two for the 200th issue. The new series opens with S.H.I.E.L.D. being shut down for some reason and Norman Osborn being transferred to a regular federal prison. Chaos will no doubt ensue. Elsewhere, two criminals in suits, not totally dissimilar to the Iron Spider-Man outfit of the regular continuity, are doing crimes and Miles' relationship with Kate Bishop is going from strength to strength. So much so that Miles still wants to tell her his secret, a monumentally stupid idea, as Ganke happily points out. Okay. From these plot threads laid down, what do you think will happen? If you guessed, Norman will escape, Miles will ignore Ganke, and the evil Spider-Man twins will turn out to be largely forgettable, then you would be correct. However, Bendis does throw some nice curveballs into the proceedings. For one, Kate shits herself when Miles tells her his secret, because her family... ...is Hydra. Okay, that was a pretty good plot twist. Didn't see that coming. Osborne becomes the Green Goblin again... ...and the fight is a nice callback... ...to the earlier issues of Ultimate Spider-Man... ...with Spidey fighting the Goblin... ...in the grounds of Aunt May's house. Oh, and there's two Spider-Men... ...because Peter is back. Peter wants his web shooters returned... ...as they are his only link to his father. You'd be forgiven for thinking this was a clone... ...but he isn't. He's really Peter resurrected. Now, not unreasonably... You want to know how this all happened, don't you? Well, frankly, so do I. Bendis doesn't actually provide an explanation, per se. I mean, Norman is still alive as well, and he was supposed to be dead also. So it's implied that whatever Norman did to make himself the Goblin, and whatever it was that altered Peter, and by extension Miles's body chemistry, has made them immortal in some way. However, by the end of this story, Norman is really most sincerely dead, so that can't be the case. The best part of this story arc is once again Peter's supporting cast reacting to Peter's return. There's some nice scenes with Murray Jane, who has been given surprisingly short shrift throughout this book, and some lovely Gwen and Aunt May scenes. The biggest surprise is that Norman goes to see Jonah Jameson to confess all his sins and ends up murdering him. This was a shock. I don't know how far in advance Bendis knew that Miles would be porting over to the regular Marvel Universe, but killing Jonah in this fashion was still a WTF moment. Issue 7 concludes with Miles' dad showing up once again and Peter and MJ riding off into the sunset. Overall, this is a Woolworth pick and mix bag. The character moments are beautifully handled, but once again, it's the Peter Parker angle that's the most interesting, not the Miles stuff. I couldn't care less about the storyline with Miles' dad because Miles just isn't that interesting. The Kate Bishop is in Hydra angle is far more worthy of exploration. Even the Peter Parker stuff, though, is coloured by his resurrection. The whole point of the Ultimate Universe was to avoid this kind of bankrupt cack. And yet this omnibus has been full of crossovers with other books, deaths and resurrections, legacy characters and guest appearances. I'm beginning to think I checked out of buying the Ultimate line at the right time. Issues 8 through 9 is a two-part story that finally reveals Jefferson Morales' big secret. Just like Peter Parker's parents, he was an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. To be fair, whilst this reveal isn't startling the original, the first issue of this arc is Bendis at his best, a crime noir story of ambiguity and intrigue. But this is the problem. It seems like he'd rather be writing Ed Brubaker-type crime capers than superhero comics. Now, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, and Spider-Man and Daredevil, both characters Bendis' has worked on extensively, do tend to lend themselves to crime-caper-style stories. But when the book only really comes to life when these crime story flashbacks occur, as it did with the Chris Samney two-parter, there's a possibility that the writer would rather be working on something else. In this story, Jefferson comes clean to Miles that he was an undercover SHIELD operative working on bringing down the kingpin of crime, Wilson Fisk. The art in this story arc is exceptional, really evocative of the 40s pulp noirs and beautifully sketchy in places. It may be the best story in the book. Issues 10 through 12 close the book out in deeply unsatisfactory style. It wraps up the Kate Bishop storyline well enough and features some wonderfully snarky dialogue from Dagger, who reveals she never liked Kate all that much. As usual, the secret identity reveal causes issues when Kate's father kidnaps Miles, Ganke and Jefferson, and it's Miles and Ganke's former roommate, Judge, who leads Cloak and Dagger to Hydra, in this reality being led by Doctor Doom. In and of itself, this is all fine. Doom is well handled, the story at only three issues moves along well, and there's some wonderful humour and character interplay. Maria Hill, Kitty Pry, Cloak and Dagger, all teaming up to help Miles is magnificent. And there's even a resolution to the Spider-Twins storyline that I swore I thought had slipped Bendis' mind. But the book ends on a cliffhanger. A big red earth appears in the sky and we're told Miles will next be seen in Secret Wars. I felt conned. No, really. Bad enough that important crossovers were missing from the book, so I didn't feel like I was being given the complete picture. But to end an expensive book like this one on a cliffhanger felt like a massive middle finger. Even without this, I'd be hard-pressed to say this was value for money. I enjoyed it, after a fashion, but the weakest part of the story was Miles himself. Representation is important, and I know the guy has a big fan base, but I didn't really feel like he had much of a personality. As with a lot of The Ultimate Line, this felt, in many ways, like yesterday's leftovers, reheated, covered with sauce, and passed off as a new meal. Crucially, this doesn't make me want to pick up the next chapter in Miles' story, where I presume he ends up in the regular Marvel Universe. I just don't care enough to spend money on it. Maybe I'll check out a comicsology sale of the other stuff at some point, or maybe the upcoming Into the Spider-Verse movie, which admittedly does look very good, will endear Miles to me more. More so than this collection did, anyway. Bendis is a great writer whose work just doesn't connect with me for some reason. I and many others were sceptical when he finally left Marvel to pop over to DC, but I have to confess his Superman work is keeping my interest. The Daily Planet is integrated into the DNA of the Superman strip more than the Bugle antics here, and this plays more into Bendis's strengths as a writer, that whole investigative journalism crime reporter thing. As such, his Superman work has been far more interesting to me than this was. Miles, however, has become a rather large cash cow for Marvel, and he's a key player in the upcoming animated movie Into the Spider-Verse. Which, like I said, does look like it's going to be a massive amount of fun. He also has a new comic book series with new writers, but we'll just have to wait and see if he remains as popular under new writers as under his original creator. Coming November 21st, 2018, Next Generation's First Generation returns to look back 30 years ago to the day, with the second season of Star Trek The Next Generation. Patrick and Sasha share their perspectives as children in the 80s in contrast to our older cynical selves. Tropes, social commentary, and shade-throwing is all fair game. Join Next Generation's First Generation for this watch-along podcast and figure out what the heck is going on as we continue on this seven-year mission. Episodes will be released on the 30th anniversary of the original airing. Find it on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Libsyn, and also explore Season 1 and our Shore Leave movie commentaries while you're at it. Again, that's Next Generation's First Generation at iTunes, Libsyn, Spotify, and Google Play. Next Generation's First Generation. Okay, shall we jump into the email bag? Because um, for me, it's been about four or five weeks since I was able to record an episode. Uh, I don't know how long it's been since I released one, but uh, life obviously got in the way. If you follow me on social media, you know my granddad had a bit of a fall. Uh, And at 88 years old, that can be quite serious. He needed a hip replacement, but has made um, a startlingly quick recovery for a man his age. Plus, there was lots of other family stuff going on that uh, interfered with my being able to get to the microphone. Uh, As it is, though, this one's done and dusted. I've been writing this one for about six months, to give you a peek behind the curtain, as I've been reading that omnibus and jotting down my thoughts and everything. So this episode is six months in the waiting. It just took a little time for me to get behind the mic. So uh, I've built up quite a bit of email, which is great. I love getting emails from you guys. First up, it's Chris Franklin. Howdy, Christopher, who is readying Superman Movie Minute 2 as I record this, which is lovely, because Superman Movie Minute was awesome, and I'm throwing my hat out there right now to make a guest appearance on Superman 2 Movie Minute. Come on, Chris, make that happen. Hello, Andy. Hello, Chris. Great commentary on the cage. Well, thank you, Chris. I never get tired of thinking about the what-ifs with this episode. I'm still not sure Trek would have succeeded as it would have without the chat, but it's great to ponder. If Hunter died when he did in a world where he continued as pike, would there have been any further trek if it had lasted three seasons? Good points on Majel Barrett. Had Roddenberry cast an actress he wasn't having an affair with, would this character have survived? I believe Roddenberry was still married at the time to someone else. Well, that begs a question, if I interrupt Chris's email for a second, how much of Nichelle Nichols's role on the show was down to the fact that she was um playing hide the sausage with Jean? You know, I mean, that's quite interesting as two, both of his girlfriends, both of his bits on the side were on the same show. I'm sure that didn't make for an uncomfortable working environment at all. Anyway, uh, Chris continues, also Susan Oliver. (sighs) Yes, I seem to recall you didn't get the Andy Griffith show much across the pond, but there's a great episode where Oliver plays a prisoner Andy and Barney have to house overnight and her female charms slowly begin to work on them. You know, we may very well have got the Andy Griffith show, but it was well before my time, and it didn't get repeated a lot. I don't remember that being repeated at all. It's the honeymooners we didn't get at all until, God, well into the 90s or 80s, when BBC Two dusted off a couple of episodes. Um, I think the Andy Griffith show, though, may be on Netflix. Or that may be the Dick Van Dyke show. Is there a difference between those two? I don't know. If it's Andy Griffith, I'll have a look for that Susan Oliver episode, because... um, Susan Oliver. Oh, and I liked Bruce Greenwood, continued Chris, and bought him as pipe myself. Whilst Hunter would have made a great Reed Richards, I think Greenwood could have filled that blue suit really well too. Anyway, great show as always. Happy anniversary. Thank you, Christopher. It's always nice to hear from you, and it's always nice to listen to your endeavours in uh, in podcasting. I'm particularly happy that Superman Movie Minute is returning. Uh, Keith Mason has emailed in, these are the episodes, he warns me up front, this is a long one, so buckle in, lovely listener. Hello again Andy, congratulations on passing episode 100 of a show that has been consistently my favourite of my subscriptions. The last several have been a particular highlight, well thank you very much. Spread the word Keith, spread it far and wide. Anyone who'll listen, give me iTunes reviews, apparently those are popular. If you listen to this shit, put an iTunes review up, let's make this thing happen. I want to be rich, and I feel that podcasting is the way for me to to do that. (laughs) I'm sorry, I couldn't keep a straight face. (laughs) Anyway, Keith continues. Tuning into the animation station, Spider-Man and his amazing friends were, apart from the reprints of the 1960s X-Men, my introduction to much of the Marvel Universe, from the all-new, all-different X-Men to Namor, Doctor Strange, and even my first memories of Thor. I have rewatched it a lot a couple of years back. There was an explanation for why they had all this tech, but never why. It was rarely used and made even less sense, except with Iceman and Firestar, though. This hidden high-tech stuff would have made it feel more like X-Mansion. I remember Battle of the Planets, but not particularly fondly, but I did like Dungeons and Dragons. From its all explaining opening to its basic, but identifiable character types, it was exciting stuff for the time, and it's a bit strange that it's one of the few 80s properties that hasn't been mined to death. I enjoyed this look back at this era, and I've been looking at more of them myself. Falling into the 80s, I was never a fan of the six million dollar man. There I said it. We can never speak again, Keith. Such is the rule of the internet. Uh, no, well, I've skipped a bit That It never appealed to me as a kid, and I haven't felt the need to revisit it. So my fondness for Lee Majors comes entirely from his role as part-time stuntman Colt Seavers. He was a man's man, but had a little of the toxic masculinity that that term engenders when it's used nowadays. It was a bit of forgettable fluff for Saturday afternoons, much like Night Rider in the a but it seemed to have a little more heart than those two, and also a fantastic theme tune that still sits in my head 30 years later. When the overlooked Human Target show had an earlier version of Christopher Chance in it, it was perfectly cast with an older, but still very much himself, Lee Majors, was present. I know what you're thinking, and you're right. Reboots are never what they want themselves to be, nor what the original fans want them to be, so it's nice to see one that works on its own, without wiping its rear end on what you liked about the original. Given the chance, I may watch this reboot and then maybe re-familiarise myself with Tom Selleck's era as well. Well... Sky One have purchased Magnum P.I., and we'll start broadcasting it in January, so I don't know if you have Sky One, but if you do, there's your chance to watch it. Again, it's nine or ten episodes in now, I'm enjoying it. You know, it's fine for what it is, it's never going to replace the original in my affections, but it's a perfectly entertaining police procedural, I find the actors all to be quite charming, the scenery's wonderful, and I think I may have a bit of a thing for Higgins. Something I thought I'd never say. Banner Banner smash! I enjoy Mark Ruffalo's take on Hulk's smaller side, and Norton did. Okay, but but to me, Banner is always going to be Bill Bixby. His lonely man walk, his easy-to-like charm and open-heartedness made the TV Hulk everything that it should be. Yes, it was formulaic. Yes, it was often sillier than it needed to be, but when it was good, it was great, and it remains my favourite origin of the Hulk outside of the comics. The many films and cartoons don't match up, and when I rewatched The Incredible Hulk Returns last year with my son, he loved it, proving that it held up better than many of its peers, and most of that was due to the performance of Bixby. He brought a humanity and pathos to the character that felt like Marvel, in a way that the Spider-Man TV show never did. On the table next to my TV is the original pilot movie in the season 2 episode, Married, maybe it's time to put them on too. Thank you for reminding me how good that show was. Not a problem. The Hulk... Um, remarkably, The Hulk is one of those shows that has not only stood the test of time, but has actually aged better as it goes along. I mean, yeah, the 70s fashions and the special effects are dated nowadays, but the show is still as entertaining as it ever was. Um, That crew at that time and that cast, they, they made a TV classic and I will do everything in my power to make people recognize that. These could have been the voyages, continues Keith. As part of my off quoted pilot blogging project, I will eventually shut up about it. I watched The Cage last month. Cerebral, cinematic, enduring, it was what Star Trek, the original series, could have been. Hunter's Captain Pike was a thinking man, but could easily get into a tussle should he need to, more along the lines of Cisco than Kirk, as you said. And once you mentioned the parallels, it became even harder not to see them. Interjecting, though, he's also very similar to Commander Sinclair having just rewatched the first season of Babylon 5. Keith continues, It would have been interesting to see what this would have been had it made it to series, but maybe it wouldn't have worked any better or failed and Star Trek would have died earlier than three seasons without Kirk. After all, without that three seasons, we don't get the next generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager or Enterprise. But as one episode, two if you count Menagerie, it's perfect for what it is. It's the one episode of the original series that stands up to multiple watchings without having to account for effects or production design or scenery chewing. Pike's five-year mission may have been missed out on, but there'll never be anything wrong with it. Listening to your commentary was a bright point of a dodgy week, and I'm grateful for the chance to revisit what remains a classic of genre TV. Could not have put that better myself, Keith. The Picard manoeuvre. Every one of the episodes you mentioned deserves high praise, but I had another thought or two of what to add. The inner light. An episode that looked at Picard and the things that his career had cost him. When he awoke back on the ship, only seconds later he'd lived the kind of life that he gave up on and it fleshed him out for me as a person who believes he made the right choice but still wonders about the path not taken measure of man's a bit preachy but an interesting legal look at what makes a person as well as an examination of who data is and what Starfleet is Patrick Stewart is on form here with a legal closing statement that stuck with me from the first time I saw it Starfleet's mission is to seek out new life well there it sits In closing, another long one, sorry. I have to say that I've enjoyed your excellent show, Vanity Project, if you prefer. Its format-light setup means you never know what you will get, and you speak so passionately and intelligently it's hard not to be swept up. Your show has been consistently excellent, entertaining, and informative, and I look forward to the next 100. All the best to you and your lot. Keith Mason. Be me so you don't have to. Thank you, Keith. That means a lot. I'm glad you enjoy. I love doing this. Uh, The fact that it's not on a regular schedule is probably part of the reason that I enjoy doing it because I do it when I want and I talk about what I want and there's no pressure to read shit that I don't give a damn about or watch something that I'm really not motivated to watch. It just it flows out of the fingertips onto the keyboard this show. It really does. I'm, as i said, I've been working on this show. I'm currently working on a Voyager show. Yes, I am going to revisit Star Trek Voyager. I'm going to follow Den of Geeks' roadmap. And I'm just approaching the end of Season 3. So listen out for that one very soon. you probably get a second episode about Seasons 4 and 5. And then another episode about 6 and 7. As the, the number of episodes they pick to watch increases as the show goes along. And I'm also currently writing a, a Babylon 5 first season. Look, uh, having just rewatched that show on Sky One, and both of them are just pouring out. And the, the good thing about stuff like that as well is you're writing about what you think about the show and what you feel about the show. So research is minimal. That's that's always good. I mean, Hey Kids Comics was heavy on the research, and I loved doing it, but it's not something I want to do on a regular basis every week. You know, it can be hard work. Uh, next, Regan Jew was emailed back. If you remember Regan email last time, or Reagan, I think it is. Sorry about that. Hi, Andrew. I'm proud you called me friend. Oh, don't worry about it. Yes, of course, you're intelligent and humble. I wouldn't go that far. When I started to read my email, I got so happy. I just kept smiling until the end of the episode. Imagine if you sent an email to an actor with an iconic voice that you've heard for so long, like James Earl Jones or Sean Connery. I'll pause for a few seconds while you do your double or seven mush money penny. Um I d I don't really know what to say to that. Thank you, Regan. I'm not Sean Connery. Or James Earl Jones, join me. Um when I wrote it, Regan continues, they were just words from keyboard to screen, but when you read it, you brought it to life with warmth and the words of your choice of emphasis and tone. One other thing I forgot to mention that makes your podcast appearances special is that once in a while you will spontaneously sing a Hummer movie or TV show theme song. In one of the outtakes for the Fantastica, Stephen Lacey stepped away and you started doing a rendition of the Imperial March from Empire. I don't think you missed a note. I don't know of anyone who can do that and the A-Team theme and also the text preamble. That's an amazing talent. (laughs) I don't know that it's a talent, more of a sign of wasted youth. Uh, I can do it with all of them. I can do the preamble to But Rogers from memory as well. And uh, Wolf. And Hardcastle and McCormick. And obviously Star Trek. And I stumble over Babylon 5 for some reason. I always get Babylon 5 wrong. Which irks me more than it should. But I can do an awful lot of those opening prayer. War of the Worlds. I can do War of the Worlds as well. I, just, I don't know that it's a talent, Regan. The funny thing is, long after you are gone, (laughs) that's optimistic, your family will always remember any time they hear any of the songs you've performed in the present. It's like the earworm from Wrath of Khan. So the answer to your son Michael saying, are you done singing, is no. Andrew Leyland Sings has been imprinted into their brains for as long as their memory lasts. If that was your plan, then that's diabolical and Darth Sidious would like it. Thank you and please keep singing. You have a great skill and should be cherished by everyone. Regan, Son California. I agree, I should be cherished by everyone. <laughs> oh, it's other Christmas. I'm having an ego boost. Uh, Patrick Delmore has emailed in. Hi Andy, great episode on top 10 next generation treks. Doing a podcast I've owned about the Next Generation has really given me an appreciation of the show's first season, and the arsenal of freedom was a real surprise. I was only six when Next Generation began to err, and Levar Burton being on the show was an assurance to my parents that this was safe viewing. Levar hosted a children's show called Reading Rainbow here in the States, which was appointment viewing when I was little, so much so that I remember more details from that show than from early Next Generation. Seeing Geordie in command of the Enterprise was really cool. I didn't really understand command structure at six, but you calling out of Riker's behaviour in your episode was a bit of an epiphany, as I accepted him as presented and never asked myself if he was good at his job. We're talking a lot about the bizarre command structure on the Enterprise on my show. The Arsenal of Freedom would also, as most of the shows would have benefited from, less Troy. Her conversation with Geordie about how he was making the crew feel couldn't have been helpful at that moment. Just to be fair to try, I think one of her best moments is the fourth season episode, Disaster, where she, Ro, and O'Brien have to work together to sort out the disabled bridge. Thank you again for a great episode. Patrick, well done. Uh, oh, you're very welcome, Patrick. P.S. I've sent over a new promo for my podcast, if you would be so kind to play it on your show. I would be delighted, Patrick. In fact, you've probably already heard that promo right now or then or earlier on, wherever you've heard it. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed hearing it, and hope other people's enjoyed listening to it. I'm going to shut up now and read my last email for the night, which is from Luke Giaconetta. Always a delight like to hear from Luke, the next generation since day one-ish. Andy, just listen to your Star Trek, the next generation, top 10-ish episodes podcast, and very much enjoyed it. I have sadly not seen very much of Star Trek The Next Generation outside of the first and seventh season and various episodes in the middle. I had a strange relationship with the show growing up and rather than get sidetracked on that rambling nonsense no one cares about, I'll just say I liked this overview and it gave me a good list of episodes to seek out. I remember really enjoying Where No One Has Gone Before from Season 1, despite some early instalment wonkiness. Similarly, I remember Conspiracy as being a really strong episode as well, including an ending which, for the next generation, I found to be remarkably gruesome. The only episode which I would have included that you did not mention but not specifically exclude, was the season two episode, The Measure of a Man, a legal procedural regarding data status as a sentient being. Not much action, but I always found this episode to be literate, intelligent and thoughtful. It also has to be one of Jonathan Frake's best line readings ever when he shuts data down as a demonstration that he can be deactivated, unlike an organic life form. Pinocchio is broken. Its strings have been cut. That chills me every time. Yeah, it's a great it is a great episode, Measure of Man. It was another one of them I felt I do love Measure of the Man. I think it's a brilliant episode. I do, I did feel it's a bit um a bit too common. Um I didn't mention it on the show. I should have, because I should have included it in good episodes that I didn't include for whatever reason, like Darmark and, and others. So that was an oversight on my part. I do love Measure of Man. I think it's a brilliant episode. Anyway, thanks for the fun episode, and hopefully I can watch some of these episodes at some point. Looking forward to whatever else comes down the pike with six. You get an egg roll, Luke. Well, thank you very much to Luke, Reagan, Patrick, Keith and Chris. Coming down the pike, I don't know. As I record this, it's December 4th. Uh, I don't know when this will go up as soon as I've finished editing it, basically. Um, I've not decided what to do for Christmas this year. And as I've mentioned, I'm in the process of writing two episodes as we speak, the Babylon 5 and the Star Trek Voyager ones, so whichever one of them gets finished first will be the one that gets recorded first. It's as simple as that. That's logic. Um, anyway, thanks for joining me. You're always appreciated. I love you guys lots. Go and plug this show to anyone who'll listen, because of that. I-, I want to be heard. I don't know why. <laughs> I'm not more important than anyone else. Um, as ever, this is a Two Tree Freaks presentation. A proud member of that network. There's a fine body of shows over on TTF. You should go and check them out. Uh, while you're doing that, click on the Amazon link when you're buying your Christmas presents for people and we get a kickback. That keeps these things on the earth, including this drivel. So it's much appreciated. I'll be back next time with whatever rises to the surface first. And remember, it's all going to be okay.